Got to bring my own podium this morning. It's one of the perks of being a guest preacher. You get to pick out what you preach from. And uh, I just can't do it from a music stand because I, I rely on, on notes. Well, you have an amazing pastor, Jeremiah, that is such a great contemporaneous speaker and such a great preparer. Um, we are really blessed to have him as our pastor. But, but he has asked me today to fill in. My name is Brian Briscoe. I'm a very longtime member of this church. In fact, I was, I was baptized up there when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I was married right here. My kids were, my wife was baptized up there. My kids were dedicated here, and they're in the process of getting baptized up there. So this church means a lot to me, um, and it is a great place. If there's anyone here who is thinking about making this church their church home, um, I would highly encourage it. It is a, it is a great place to um, be. It is a great place to raise your family, um, and it has a great staff leading us right now. So this is a good time to be a member of UBC. Um, just a little bit about me. I uh, grew up here, went to Baylor, was a ministry student, um, got a degree in religion, and uh, um, decided to go to seminary and went to seminary when my dad was a professor. He was actually an archaeologist. Um, and uh, went on to the University of Chicago where I got graduate degrees in archaeology myself. And then at the end of that process, my wife looked at me and asked what I was going to do with an archaeology degree and um, realized there might not be that great a future in it. So I actually went back to law school, and for the last uh, 12 years or so, I've been practicing law here in Fort Worth um, and getting to kind of scratch my ministry itch by, by preaching, uh, by Jeremiah graciously allowing me to preach. Um, one or two times a year. So I am happy to be here. I will say, in all my years of traveling to Israel to do archaeology, we never danced and sang on the site like those kids did. It was amazing. It was great. So today, pull out your Bible if you have it or follow along with the uh, screens behind me. We're going to be reading and talking about my favorite passage of Scripture, which is the parable of the lost son. So if you have your Bible, it's found in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. I think this is um, perhaps Jesus' greatest parable. Um, it, it speaks so much to the human condition and, and who we are as, his, as God's children. So follow along as I read. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Today I want to focus on this story, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. But before we get into the details... I think it's, understand, it's important to understand a little bit about the audience that Jesus was speaking to when he told the story. So who was hearing this story about these two sons? The text tells us that there were two groups of people listening in on that day. On one side, the tax collectors and sinners, and on the other side, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, of course, made up the religious elite and the powerful at the time of Jesus. This group was made up of the best society had to offer. They were the big men. They were the shot callers, the movers. They were the shakers. They were the hard workers, the hard chargers, the men who got things done at that time. They were powerful. They were rich. They were respectful and had worked hard to get where they were in life. In short, these religious elite were the men your mom hoped you would be like when you grew up. Sorry, mom, if you're watching. On the other side of the crowd were the sinners and tax collectors. These folks were the complete opposite of the religious elite. They were the outcasts of society. They were the lazy. They were the drunks. They were the sex workers. They were the friends of the hated Romans. They were the disabled. They were the chronically ill. They were the lawbreakers who failed to live up to God's covenant. These were the people your mom didn't want you hanging around with on the weekend. But what's important to know about these two groups is how much one group hated the other group. Those religious leaders hated the sinners. You see, the religious leaders had worked their whole lives to obey every single command of God. That is what they lived to do. While the sinners seemingly spent their whole lives breaking every command of God. And for that reason, the religious leaders hated the sinners. They hated them so much that they refused to associate with them. If they ever came into contact with them, they took steps to ritually cleanse themselves so that they would no longer be associated with them or the stink of those people. In fact, those religious leaders thought the sinners were irredeemable. They were so far from God that they were basically forgotten by God. They were just lost causes that we didn't need to pay attention to. And of course, we know that it's for this reason that those religious leaders were so suspicious of this new rabbi, Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners. 
In fact, they would tell you he spent too much time with sinners. Sinners were attracted to Jesus, and he never turned them away. In fact, he, he made them his disciples. They were the people that promulgated his message throughout the world. And this infuriated those religious leaders and was one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, they wanted to end his ministry. And so in this context, to this audience, the sinners on one side, the religious elite on the other side, Jesus taught a parable. He actually teaches a series of parables, but we're going to focus on this one today. Now, a parable is not a true story, of course. It's a made-up story. It's a made-up story that's meant to teach a lesson about who God is. And one of Jesus' favorite ways, if not his most favorite way, to teach stories about God was through, to teach lessons about God was through these types of stories. So let's think about the parable of the prodigal son just for a moment this morning. It has two main parts, of course. The first is about the younger son, the so-called prodigal son, the one that gets all the fame from this story, probably much to the uh, concern of the elder son. The second's about him, the elder son. And both of these teach important lessons to us about who God is. So Jesus said there was once a wealthy landowner who had two sons. The first son, the younger son, wanted his share of his father's estate. The story does not tell us why he wanted it, but it is clear from context that he wanted to go out on his own. He wanted to experience the world. He wanted to see if he could make it without his father. And that's a very common thing, right? It's a very common part of our human experience. We all have this desire to see if we have what it takes to make it out on our own. And of course, we live in one of the most, if not the most, highly individualistic nations in the history of the world. We Americans want to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to be independent. We want to determine our own destiny. That's who we are. That's in our DNA as a people. And these things on their own, these motivation, these desires, they're not bad things, but they have to be done mindful of the fact that we are completely dependent upon God. Otherwise, we head down the path of pride and the path of selfish desire, which, of course, are roads to perdition. We start thinking everything we have done is because of our own abilities and our own intellect, and we put ourselves before God. And, and this is where that younger son was. Whatever his intentions might have been when he asked for his share of wealth from his father, which I should note here, his father freely gave to him upon request. What dad does that? No questions asked. You can have half of my estate. Of course, that's our first indication of the great love of this father that we all experience. But whatever that prodigal son's intentions were, those intentions became sinful when he settled in that far distance land. The story doesn't say exactly what happened, other than the boy squandered all his wealth via, as the message puts it, loose living. Well, loose living's not good, I think. Whatever it means, it led to the boy wasting all of the wealth his father had just given him. And who here among us has not squandered the blessings God has given us? There's no one here who can say they have ever used all of God's gift to the best of our ability. I for sure can't. There's no one here who can say they have ever fought off every temptation and never succumbed to sin. That's the human condition. That's who we are. 
And no matter how much the Father loves us and blesses us, we find ways to screw it up, just like the prodigal son did. We find ways to squander it. We find ways to live life full of sin. And that realization of that fact that we all come to at some point can lead us down two paths. When we realize that we are sinful people, we can either go down the path of shame and remorse <clears throat> remorse and anger at ourselves, or we can go down the path of the hardening of the heart, where our anger is focused not on us, but at God. Why would God do this to me? It can lead us to rejection of God. We'll talk about that with the elder son in a moment. But for the prodigal son, his realization that he is a sinner and he has wasted his father's wealth comes when he is sitting in a pig pen covered with mire and muck and so hungry that he wants to eat pig food. His sin has landed him in a horrible place, a place of desperation and pain so deep that it looks like there is no way out. And as he sits in the mud, his thoughts are taken to the generosity of his dad. His dad wouldn't have put him in this spot. He would never have ended up this way had he stayed with his dad. And he remembers that his dad treats his servants better than this. He treats them with kindness and respect. He would never let them go hungry. So the son hatches a plan. He will return to his father and beg him to let him return as a servant, no longer as his son. The boy has reached a place in his life where he could not go on without his father's help. He only had one place to turn, and it was a desperation, last second, Hail Mary, would the person who wealth he squandered really take him back? But that is all he had to do. You can imagine his nervousness and his anxiety as he journeyed back from that distant land to his old home. It was probably a very long journey, and you can imagine the thoughts that were running through his head, the anxiety and the nervousness. He probably didn't sleep at night as he camps, trying to get back to his land, thinking of how his father would respond. Would he accept him? Would he reject him? Would there be anything for him when he got back? And you all know the story, but, but you can imagine his surprise when as he got close enough to see his property, his old home, he sees his father. And his father is not waiting there with an a, a angry look on his face. No, his father is running full speed across his field, holding up his robes, holding out his arms, ready to embrace him. There was no anger. There was no resentment. There was only happy tears of joy. It seems the father was waiting day after day after day, watching in the direction that the son left, praying and hoping that he would see him return. And when that father finally gets to the son, he embraces him and he kisses him. There's not a hint of judgment. There's not a hint of sadness. There's not a hint of rejection. There's not a hint of hate in the father, and that is true of God, your father. There is only joy, relief, celebration, acceptance, and love. The son attempts to apologize to the father. And I love the way the message puts it. The message says that the father doesn't even hear the apology. And why does he not hear it? Because he is too busy planning a party. He doesn't seem to hear it because he is too busy ordering his servants to bring out the finest clothes and jewelry for the boy and to slaughter the prized cow so that he can throw a celebration for the boy. And, and with a prized cow, it would have been a celebration that he would have invited everybody in the village to come and see. 
He was holding this boy up as a prize, as his proud thing. The boy who was lost has returned, and I want everybody to know that he is back, and we're going to have a party. And, And what is happening here? It doesn't make any sense to the reader. Why would the father celebrate this irresponsible, disrespectful, selfish son of his? These acts demand punishment. They demand compensation. They demand judgment, right? They don't call for a happy reunion with the father, and they sure don't call for a massive party where we're going to display this disrespectful son to the whole community. And you can see the religious leaders stewing as they hear this part of the story. Because they were smart, you know, these religious leaders. They knew Jesus was saying that that younger son was like the people over there. He was like those sinners. And that the father was like God. So that the message of the story, clear as day, was that God loved those people over there. He loved the sinners. And even more than that, God celebrated every sinner who returned to him, no matter how far their sin took them away. God loves his people so much that there is nothing they can do or say to get away from his love. And I want to stop just for a second. In case you have never heard that, there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from God's love. No matter how far away you run, no matter how deep your rebellion, no matter how wasteful your life, God loves you. And that is a fact. And he is waiting with open arms to celebrate you when you return to him. Now, how do you think those sinners in the crowd heard this story? This was probably the first time for several of them to hear that God loved them. That they were not forgotten by God. That they mattered to God. And that God wanted and had a relationship with them. That they had a future. This rabbi Jesus was turning the religious leader's theology on its head. God loves sinners just as much, if not more, than those religious leaders who spent every minute of their lives trying to obey God's commands. Let me say that again. God loved those sinners just as much, if not more, than those people who were trying so hard to follow his every command. I can imagine that there were gasps, tears, maybe even laughs of joy as the true, deep, lasting nature of God's mercy, love, and grace was revealed in that story. And the beautiful part of the the first part of the story is that the lessons within it are still true. There may be some of you listening today who have never heard or maybe never believed that God really loves you that the grace and mercy extended to that prodigal son is extended to you as well. That God is on your side, that he's pulling for you, that he's celebrating with you. But that is true. God loves each and every one of you and is extending his grace and mercy to each and every one of you. All we have to do is follow him, to put our lives in his hands, to become dependent on him, the giver of all good gifts. Now, the religious leaders were very upset, as you can imagine, when they heard this parable. But they did not know what they were truly in for until Jesus turned to the older brother, the one that we often forget. You see, that older brother was the good brother. 
He worked hard. He obeyed his dad. He always did the right thing. He was responsible. He was that kid that we all want our kids to be when they grow up. He was, guys. He was the kid that you never had to worry about. As Jesus described him, those religious leaders knew exactly who he was talking about. We are the oldest son. So Jesus says that that responsible older brother, as he was probably doing every day, was out working hard for his father in the field when he heard music and dancing coming from the main house. The brother asked the servant, what is going on? And the servant told him that the younger brother had returned and that his father was throwing a party in his honor. The older brother was angry. He was furious. And for good reason, right? His younger good-for-nothing brother who had squandered half of the family wealth had returned. So what? The kid deserved punishment, not a party. Let's be honest, if you were that hard-working older brother who had spent every day of your life trying to please your dad, wouldn't you have thought the same thing? The older brother, out of anger at his father's acceptance and celebration of the prodigal son, just refused to go to the party. And his father came out and begged him to come in. But the brother, and I like to think that this is probably the first time in his life, refused to obey his dad. That's probably the first time he ever said no to his dad. This perfectly righteous rule follower finally disobeyed his father because his dad was too lenient. He was too gracious. He was too tolerant of rule breakers. All of his hard work on behalf of his father seemed like a wasted life in light of the party thrown for his wayward son. What had he been doing all this work for? The brother complained that he had worked day in and day out for his father and had never been thrown a party even a small one. The brother went so far as to refuse to acknowledge that he was even related to the prodigal son. He called him that son of yours. He's your son, dad. He's not my brother. I think that he was probably implying that the father and the prodigal son were were more alike than he wanted them to be. They were more alike in their reckless and cavalier attitudes towards life. They weren't responsible people. The elder brother, when confronted by his own pride and self-righteousness, his judgmental nature, his failure to love the things of God, chose a different path than his brother. Instead of running to his father, confessing his sin and his total dependence and need for him, the elder son chose the path of anger and rejection of his dad. He allowed his heart to harden. That's the most dangerous path we can go down. When we lose any sense of the need for forgiveness, when we forget what God has done for us, when we make it all about us and what we deserve, we're on the wrong path then. Now the father, of course, got the last word. He reminded his his eldest son that everything he had was his, and it had always been his. But that today was a day to celebrate, because he thought his other son was dead, but he was alive. Now, it's really interesting to me that Jesus stops the story here. This is the end of the story, and there's a real cliffhanger that he leaves out there. We want to go to our Netflix Netflix queue and see what episode two will bring. Now, these religious elite knew they were the oldest son in the story. But what they didn't know and what Jesus didn't tell them was, did that eldest son ever go into the party? Or did he stay outside, separated from his father? 
forever. Again, the implication is obvious. Sinners could be in a relationship with God. They could be partying with God, while the religious elite may not be. And this, like so many of Jesus' teaching, turns everything on its head. And the question for us is, how should we live our lives in light of the truths taught in this story? And I want to start just briefly with the prodigal sons out there, those of us who are running from God, or who believe God has forgotten them, or who believe they have lived their life in such a way that God has given up on them. The truth is that God loves each and every one of you. The truth is our salvation is based not on our works, not on what we do, or the things that we do or don't do, but instead is based entirely on the grace of God through faith in Him. This means that a sinner who has rejected and squandered the gifts of God can still have a relationship with God. Because our God is merciful and gracious like the father in the story. And this is the scandal of grace. This is the thing that non-Christians find so hard to believe. I have a very good friend, perhaps my best friend, who does not, is not a Christ follower, and this is the thing that hangs him up more than anything else when we talk about this stuff. How can you tell me that a man on his deathbed can have faith in Jesus and then go to heaven? Our salvation, our relationship with God is not dependent on how we act or what good deeds we do, but is entirely and wholly dependent on God's love for us. And when you embrace it, your life will be transformed. When you accept that love, your life will be different. We literally don't get what we deserve, guys. That's not what we want. And that's hard for the world to understand. And it's what makes our God such an amazing God. This means, I think, that one day, at the end of time, when we stand in front of the throne of God, and in front of the great Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and Revelation 7, it says, we'll be wearing white robes and holding our palm branches and be shoulder to shoulder in a great crowd of people. I think there will be sinners all around. God will be the ultimate judge, but my guess is there will be more sinners than religious leaders standing in that crowd with us. You may be surprised who you see there. You may be surprised at just how gracious and merciful our God is. So the message from the prodigal son's perspective is to cling to your faith in, in God. And when you end up in that pig pen, as you will, again and again and again, know that God loves you and is waiting for you to return. But what about the elder sons in the crowd? And I tend to head in this direction a lot. What is the lesson for us? Those of us who have forgotten the saving work of God, that we once were in that pig pen and God pulled us out, and that we now think that we deserve something because of all of our hard work, forget who God is. What is the lesson for us? I think the lesson is to be careful not to miss out. You see, that elder son missed out on his brother's celebration. And by missing out on that, he missed out on having a real relationship with his father. And, and what made him miss out? You know, first I think the elder son forgot that his brother was his brother. I think he forgot that his brother was part of his family. It seems like the elder son was fine if his young brother never returned. He was fine if he was dead in the field somewhere. And how often do we treat people this way? I mean, our country is as divided right now as it has ever been since the Civil War. I honestly believe that. 
And that division has moved out of politics where, you know, who cares, guys, into our places of employment, into our places of worship, and unfortunately, even into our own families. We now won't talk to people in our families because of some external belief. You know, one thing that drives division more than other is the dehumanization of people. I don't think of you as a human anymore because you don't believe what I believe. You know, the creation of the other, they're different from us, so, so they're, not, they're not human. If you don't agree with me, you're less than human. That's what the elder son was thinking about that prodigal son. But what the Bible teaches is that we're all children of God. And not just are we children of God, we're made in his image. So don't miss out. Don't miss out on those relationships with each other. Don't miss out on our relationships with God because you forget that your brother and sister is a child of God and that he or she is worthy of dignity and respect. And second, the elder son missed out because he believed he could earn his way into a good relationship with his father. And that, that's an easy one to fall into. It, it just makes sense that we would have to earn God's love, right? You know, maybe he keeps some sort of heavenly accounting so we can determine who gets the biggest mansion when we die. You know, that if we do the right things, God has to do good things for us. Now, let me tell you, that's, that's the root of heresy when you start thinking that way. That leads to the prosperity gospel. That leads to Christian nationalism. That leads to all these heresies that are not true about God. It, the elder son worked hard for his father every single day. And he followed all of his commands. As such, he believed he deserved the good things of God. And those who didn't obey God like him did not deserve good things. But he got so caught up in doing the right thing every day so that he could earn his salvation that he missed out on what was important to his father. And what was important to his father was finding his son. When a son is lost, a father could care less if the chores are done. Father could care less if the fields are tended or if the rules are followed. All a father wants when his son is lost is his son. And that's what we should want as well. We should want the things that God wants. Don't get so caught up in trying to earn your way into God's favor that you miss out on God's true heart and his true desires. The final thing I want to highlight today is that the older brother missed out because he was too busy judging his younger brother. The older brother got so worked up about his brother's life that he bought the lie that some people are unredeemable. And that was the lie of the religious elite. He didn't think his brother's life was of any value to God. And how many of us fall into that trap? Instead of love, our default is judgment. Our favorite thing is to identify what activities disqualify someone from the love of God and then to identify those people who are engaging in those activities. We waste so much time pointing out the speck in our brother's eye that we miss the log in our own. God tells us to love people, guys, not to judge them. That's God's job. God's, God's going to be the judge of us. When we fall into that trap of judging everybody else, we miss out on the good things of God, just like the elder son. So the takeaway for today is this, and I thank you all for your patience and listening to a lawyer drone on about God's love, but be kind to others. Extend grace and mercy in the same way God extends grace and mercy to you. Accept God's love and have peace with the fact that it is not anything that you have done or not done 
but the merciful work of God that guarantees your salvation. And get busy with the work of loving people and stop judging them. Leave that to God. If you follow these principles, the principles of the story of the prodigal son, you won't risk missing out on God's great party like the elder son and the religious leaders did. Now before I let you go, I would be remiss in not telling you about the greatest act of love God did for each and every one of you. As the prodigal son and the elder son learned in different ways, we are all sinners. There's nobody perfect. And as sinners, we are separated from God. But God, in his great love and mercy for us, made a way back to him by sending his son, Jesus, to die for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. Oh, what a love. You imagine the father's love for that son returning back. Think of the love that compelled a father to send his son to die for you and I. And God, in his great love and mercy for us, made it very simple for us to restore that broken relationship. All we have to do is put our faith in his son, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus. And that will guarantee that our relationship with God is eternally secure. We can't earn our way into heaven and we can't earn our way out of heaven. We simply must believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did, died and rose again for our sins so that we may be saved. If you have any questions about what that means for you, if there's anyone here who, who is struggling with, with who Jesus is, who God is, does he love me? How can he love someone like me? Have I made too many mistakes? And there are people at this church that want to talk to you. And as the, the uh, music leaders come forward, um, I will encourage you to, to talk to staff members at this church if you're having any of those questions. Let me pray for us as we end. Lord, thank you for the lessons of the prodigal son. Thank you for showing us how much you love us. Thank you for telling us that there is nothing we can do that can separate us from your love. Teach us to be more like you. Teach us to be more loving. Teach us to be more merciful. Teach us to be more gracious so that the world will see us as people of love and so that the world will want to be like that and will want to follow you. And Lord, for those of us who struggle as, as elder sons, let us just have that peace that is put on our heart, that peace that says you have done enough. And what has been done for you on the cross is enough. Just rest in God. Don't be distracted by what the world is telling you. Don't be distracted by the division. Don't be distracted by judging your fellow brothers. Just trust that God has done it all for you. Give us that peace this week as we go and as we live our lives and as we shine as beacons of love as you command us to do for our community as we work with our community to heal our community, to help our community, to reach out to our community, to show our community what it means to be a follower of Christ and how deep and radical and gracious and merciful your love is for them. And we thank you, of course, Jesus, for the, the main act of love that you have shown for us by dying on the cross so that we know if we put our faith in you that we will have eternal salvation spent with you for eternity. We can't thank you enough for this. We love you 
Jesus, we love you, God. We love you, Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.